think about basement of Vienna, Virginia, right, having no entertainment experience at all, to being fortunate enough to build a, a franchise like Sports Science, and then having the sports world interested in what you have to say. That's like a crazy journey where that wasn't even the intent from where we originally started. Welcome to Student Up Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA. I'm also an entrepreneur and investor, and on my show, I sit down with world-class guests who are high performers and thought innovators to explore their psychology of decision-making, their playbook of tools and strategies related to sports, entertainment, and business. And today's guest is John Brankus. He is the sports science guy, the man with his brother who started a production company in their basement, built several properties from scratch, and licensed them to ESPN, FYI, badass move, and have brought the science, data, and analytics to life in athletes and sports. Sports science showcases how the likes of Ben Roethlisberger dropped that dime into Santonio Holmes' hands, the Super Bowl final drive against the Arizona Cardinals, to the Ben and Ovi stick on a slap shot to why Giancarlo Stanton's follow-through after making contact with the bat and ball actually doesn't matter, to what it feels like to get tackled by Ray Lewis, that kind of stuff. If you haven't seen the show, I suggest you do. They've won six Emmys. JB's college major was Rhetoric Communication Studies, the theory of the argument. He's very good at that. And at media. Interviewing, being interviewed, and the whole nine, really. I was outmatched, but very humbled to host him. He even talks about how to hack the presidential election in the future. I asked him about 2024 when we explored what it would take to run and win with the Electoral College vote. Enjoy my conversation with media mogul, entrepreneur, and investor John Brankus at our offices in Baltimore. Away bags and accessories make for the perfect gift with their lifetime guarantee and 100-day trial. So there's a perfect size and color for everyone on your list this holiday season, or grab an away gift card for yourself if you can't make up your mind. You can choose from over 10 colors and five sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large for extended stays, or the kids carry-on for the smaller travelers among us. All suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate that's very lightweight, bends, never breaks. Here's my favorite part the TSA-approved combination lock that's built into the top of the bag to prevent theft. And my second favorite part, a removable, washable laundry bag that will keep your dirty clothes separate from the clean ones. I think about this often as I have away game travel with a teammate, we share a room, and there's only one laundry bag. I don't have to worry about getting into the room first. I have one now in my away travel bag. Now, here's a special offer to listeners of Suiting Up Podcast. For $20 off a suitcase, you can visit awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase from Away Travel. It is a must. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. Get a check one two. Checking one two three one two three one two three. Check 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 check. Beautiful. You're really good at that. I am good at that. It's I've done like it before you do it for a living. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly. Thanks for joining me in Baltimore, brother. It is awesome to be here in Baltimore. I was down visiting my family in Virginia, so Baltimore is not too far away, and it's awesome cities. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how close my wife is from the West Coast. It's amazing how close. D.C., Baltimore, Philly, New York. I mean, people don't realize. Right. I get my car when I used to live in Vienna, Virginia, and I could get to New York in three and a half hours. Yeah, you can do all four <laughs> in one week. Oh, easy. I, I can't even get around L.A. Right. 
to four spots in, in one week. Yeah, two is ambitious. Yeah. You, have, you have a morning meeting and an afternoon meeting, yeah. and that's what you get. We tried to record in L.A. Uh, last couple of times I was there and then have run into some conflict. It's, it's great to actually do this because we both have podcasts talking about similar things, yep. uh, which is high-performance optimization uh, through different routes and, and being able to unpack utilities for listeners on how to do so. Yep. Has that always been of interest to you? Like, how does John Brankus end up where you are today? The way that I operate is I'm one speed. I'm just Johnny one speed. Okay. Um, it's Sunday morning <laughs> yeah. at 11.30, right. and you and I are here doing a podcast mm-hmm. right on the busiest travel day of the year, getting back home. Yeah, like, and your flight's at four. Right, my flight's at four. Right. I'm like, well, I got a couple hours. I can fit something in. <laughs> we, tried, we tried to fit something in, <laughs> in D.C. a few weeks ago, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this yeah. guy is Johnny One Speed. I'm just Johnny One Speed. So when I get, have my mind focused on something and really want to get it done, I, a lot of people like to say, gosh, you know, they sit back and they look at people who become successful in their, in their respective fields, and they go, you must be so smart. You must have known somebody in the business. You must have blank, blank, blank. And I'm like, or you're just really stubborn and you just won't take no for an answer and you figure a way around it and you keep going and keep going and keep going. And that really is the category that I fall in is I, you know, in a, in a production sense, when you're trying to do something, when someone's like, nah, you, 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 I don't think you can do that. That just means not right now. Right. So you figure out. No means not right now, so how do I get around everything? Mm, it's resilience for you. It's resilience, and it's, it's almost not – Yeah, it's almost not even – I mean, resiliency would, would – you know, in, in being resilient, that would imply that you're knocked down. To me, like, I don't even hear the no. I don't even hear it. I just don't even hear it. I'm just like, oh, that – I need to turn right. I need to turn left. Like, <laughs> I can't continue to go straight. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't even really register because – um, what's also interesting is that you pick things that a lot of people like to say, well, you can do anything that you want. Now, I like to rephrase that and say, you can do anything you can, hmm. right? So I can't, play, I, like that. I can't play in the NBA, right? Like, I, like no matter how much I want to, I'm 46 years old. Yeah. I have a vertical leap of six inches. Like I'm not playing in the NBA. I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> so no matter what I do, the want versus can is an important distinction. And some people say, well, isn't that's a negative statement. Hmm. And I say, no, it's an honest statement. I can be president. I mean, it's possible. Yep. If I really wanted to be president, that you could do that. Could I you know, play offensive lineman in the NFL? No. Like I, it's being, it's setting your parameters into dialing in what can and can you not do? If you wanted to go the route of pursuing a 2024, call it presidency campaign, what are like a few things that you would say? And and this could be Johnny one speed advice or, or, or advice to Dwayne Johnson or Howard Schultz or someone who's. (laughs) It's a rumor to like, go, yeah, Mark yeah. Cuban, et cetera. What are, what are some things? Cause, cause you're very good at breaking down process too. And I think that's the next big part of what am I capable? What can I do in way of passion? Then it's okay. Let's develop those skill sets and pursue it. Well, the number one thing in terms of the electorate is that they vote on emotion. They really don't sit back and say, okay, what are the issues that are, are at stake here? Let me lay out my 20 points. They literally, and when I say they, I mean, 
I think this applies to nearly everybody. Mm -hmm. They sit back and they say, who makes me feel good? Who makes me feel the way that I want to feel right now? And I think when you go through each election, you go, yeah, you know what? That kind of explains the way that everyone gets elected. When Obama got elected, I mean, Obama is the most charismatic, you know, he's handsome. He just, he could tell you anything and you're like, God, that guy makes me feel good. Didn't have like dense experience. Right. Had hardly any national experience. Slightly more than Trump, but. (laughs) Slightly more. Right. But you go from that. And that's, that's, what's interesting is that I don't think the electorate thinks you need experience. We're moving away from experience. We're moving away from that. And where where you would think, well, you need somebody who knows how the system works. It's like, you know, the system doesn't work, so maybe what we need is a total outsider. And Obama was, he represented outside but hope. And he was really super nice. Mm -hmm. So imagine that message when he initially got elected in, in 08. You can't imagine that message working if it's from somebody who wasn't charismatic and it was just plainly stating it like he was he is as as good as they they come then you get trump who's like this complete opposite just hard nose you know just very direct in a way that he doesn't care if he rubs people the wrong way that's what this country needs and emotionally when you sit back and you go you know what? I think that that, that explains more than anything. Cause I don't think anybody lined up. Here's what one person believes. Here's what another person believes. My major in college was rhetoric, communication studies, the theory of the argument. Hmm. And I think that when you argue, well, how did one candidate win over the other? I'm like, it's really emotive. It's just, what are you emoting? And I wonder, and I, I, I wonder if there's some point at which we get down to more of it being an intellectual theoretical argument or, you know, philosophical argument because the, the, we can get ourselves into trouble just by going based on emotion. And I think that in terms of the platforms, the two party platform that we have set up, it's, it's, I mean, if you read George Washington's essay on the fear of having only two parties, he's like, there's just no way you can boil down all issues into black and white. Mm-hmm. And this is the first president. He's like, it's just, it's just, you just can't do that. Like you need many different groups who are out there. Right. Because I think in general, most people, and I, and I'm not speaking, I'm not saying this because this is how I feel. I'm saying that most, I think most people are fiscally conservative. I believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe most people believe I want, I want to keep as much money as I have made, but I want the government to be accountable for the money that I give them. So I don't mm-hmm. think people are totally against that. But then socially, I think most people are moderate. You sit any two people down from any two different factions, and they can get along just fine. I mean, it doesn't matter what they are. You have one-on-one. They can get along just fine. You can have a total atheist against someone who's a religious zealot, and they sit down, and they can agree to disagree, and we're all good. You get 100 of those people in a room, and you get an argument. You put 1,000, and now you've got police having to intervene because there might be a riot. You put a million, you got a war. Hmm. Like There's just, in these escalating numbers, the emotions get jacked up, and we can't seem to find common ground. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. And so in, inside of five minutes, our listeners figure out how well you're able to distill something as challenging as our political atmosphere and break it into uh, functional um, categories and approach to you know, how we are 
uh, maneuvering in this landscape today and probably why you've, you've been so good at also talking about the emotional side of, of interacting with other humans and then the intellectual side. To me, that's where uh, sports science lives. And you're able to take a, a, an industry which is highly emotional in sports, right? Um, and then talk about real relevant data. Um, my brother-in-law and I started our production company out of the basement of my parents' house in Vienna, Virginia. I mean, literally out of college. And while I was in college, um, the, I did an independent study with Steven Soderbergh and he had made sex lies and videotape. He was just finishing Kafka and the head of the Virginia independent film festival was a guy named Bob Ghazali, who's now the CEO and president of AFI. So at that time I was going to drop out of college because I said, you know, I want to go into entertainment I don't know if the college is for me. And that, this was at the University of Virginia. And my dean said, well, why don't you just make your own major? Like, just make up all the classes that are your dream classes, put them under the independent study umbrella, and go for it. So I did the study with, with uh, Soderbergh, and he said, learn to do everything yourself. And by that piece of advice was perfect for Johnny one speed. I'm like, I'll learn, yeah. I'll just learn to do everything myself, <laughs> yeah. you know? And we started our production company, literally my brother-in-law and I just ourselves. And I shot everything. I edited everything. I directed everything. I produced everything. Like I was like the guy, my, my business partner was more on the deal making side and I was more on just like the uh, nuts and bolts side. So by doing it all yourself, you very quickly come to a point of saying, well, if I'm going to invest all my time, it better be in something that I love, that I genuinely love. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in D.C. I was born in 1971. I had an NBA championship with the Bullets. I had a World Series with Cal Ripken and the Orioles, right. three Super Bowls with the Redskins. Yeah, the, the glory days. The, those are the glory days of D.C. <laughs> sports. Now, since then, we have not had a major championship, but the seed had been planted in my mind. On I was just a sports fanatic. On the opposite side, I'm just a science geek. I, I could talk science all day long, both sides, right? I could talk, you know, one side of an argument in science, the other side of the argument. I want to understand where both sides are coming from. I love that. We ended up fusing those two things. We ended up developing a specialty in sport TV because we got the contracts for the Washington Bullets, even when they were the Bullets, transferring to the Wizards and the Washington Capitals, got many other, uh, many other NHL and, and NFL teams, got the sports contracts for them where we did all of their production. And then also the Discovery Channel was in this area, and they launched this thing called the Science Channel. And we were doing the first live interactive science show. We did a show called the Discovery Channel Young Scientist Challenge. It was all science-based, and we developed a real expertise in sport TV and science TV. We ended up putting those two things together in a show called XMA, Extreme Martial Arts. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise did the raps for it. was tied in with The Last Samurai. Did really well. National Geographic comes along and says, hey, we want that, but science it up. We made a show called Fight Science. Right. World's greatest martial artist came in to punch and kick the crap out of a crash test dummy to see who could generate the most amount of force and which style was most efficient. Then Fox and National Geographic, and that was top 10 of all time at the time. And they came in, they ran fight science opposite the original Peyton Manning versus Eli Manning Sunday night football game. It was like their third highest rated show of the year on Fox Sports. 
They're like, what else do you have? This is amazing. We said, we have sports science. We're going to take that approach and do it for all sports. Right. And we're going to put the world's greatest athletes under our microscope and reveal to the audience, this is how they actually do it. And it, what was interesting is initially Fox is like, we love the concept, but sports science is a terrible title. And I'm like, why is that? They're like, people hate science. I mean, like people are going to think it's a geeky thing. And I said, I think that's your big misconception. People love science. Yeah. They just, it's the manner in which it's presented. If it's not presented in an entertaining way, then people will tune it out. I said, if it's super entertaining, like having Paul Rabel in the lab, hitting plates and shattering them to right. see how accurate it is, right. they'll watch it. Yep. But it's all about the way that you present it. And, you know, we went 11 years, we've won six Emmys and done 1,600 segments for ESPN and done very well um, with it and very grateful that the premise that I had, that the world's greatest athletes would be willing to come into a lab for free because they don't do it for money and right. they, they want to show how good they actually are. Wow. So two questions. The first is, you know, how did you guys go about creating a property that was sellable in the first place, right? Going back to that, I, I am capable of this. There's, there's a lot of bricks to be laid before you cut a deal with Fox and Nat Geo. Sure. Um, and, and, and then secondly is what was that turnaround from Fox to essentially ABC ESPN? So we licensed, we created, and it's pretty bold, especially back in those days, to create a license deal and to say we own a property and you're going to license it from us. Oh, yeah. So you're not going to give us Especially money. Especially with those it. juggernauts. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're giant, giant organizations, yeah. right? Yeah. If somebody wants something enough, you can cut a deal. And, and assuming you had IP, right? Right. Which sports science was our IP. Yeah. And it was our IP, and it was our vision, and more importantly, it was our ability to communicate. The technology at the time, the slow-mo motion capture, too, was you know, advanced, high-tech stuff. We have it on our iPhones now, but... Yeah, at the time that we sold it in 2006, it barely existed. In fact, Fight Science didn't... We, we, we were shooting that... We shot uh, XMA in 35-millimeter film. Oh, wow. So we could only go up to 100 frames a second. We yeah. weren't shooting because it had to be indoor lighting. Mm -hmm. um, the Phantom camera that was all the rage, we had version one. We had, like, the first Phantom that was out on a set, right. essentially testing it and putting it to the test to figure out what it could do. It was this giant box with a giant computer attached yeah. to this it. This is like military hardware. How was, did you fund that? How it was you just, you, you made partners along the way and you yeah. cut deals with people and you said, hey, I'm going to build the world's greatest lab and I'm going to invite the world's greatest athletes. And the, the sense, so the person who was running Fox Sports at the time, when we said, we got this license deal, we're going to put it together and I'm going to get the world's greatest athletes. First of all, we were laughed at, right? Because they're like, you're never going to get anybody to come in. You're going to have to pay them. I said, I don't think that's true. I right. really don't. I think that if you build something, they will come. So the people who came were, you know, Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, Ray Lewis, you know, Larry Fitzgerald. Let's go. List goes, I mean, obviously on and on and on. Paul Rabel for lacrosse. Yeah. Like, I mean, it goes on and on of just like the world's greatest athletes. So we, when we sat there with Fox, we made two complete seasons that won three Emmys. So we did, uh, I think it's 26 episodes for Fox and it, it did really well. And it was, it was this little tiny show that at the Emmys, 
it was the, each category that we're in. We were up against the Olympics, yep. the Super Bowl. Those were sixty-minute shows. They were sixty-minute yeah. shows divided into they. They each show had five, seven segments depending on the show. Mm-hmm. And so John Skipper came along from ESPN, and yep. he personally came down and said, "I want to make a deal with you." He said, "Your show is amazing. We want it. It's awesome." But you have to take the idea of having a standalone show and get it out of your mind mm-hmm. because the future is all in short-form TV. We're gonna, your, set, your show already is segmented. We want to take those segments and integrate them into the entire ESPN platform. And that was back in 2009. So in 2009, we're thinking to ourselves, we're like, God, you would have to sacrifice having a show. But he, he, you know, in his words, he was like, look, I can't. 20 million people are never going to watch Sports science, no matter how much, no matter how good it is, but I can get thirty million people to see it if it's in Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. So that's what ended up happening is that they integrated it into the entire platform, and you know it was we were very, very, very fortunate. And you also became not only a destination for athletes because of the entertainment and what you were creating with the property, but you were also uh, becoming a source of utility for a lot of athletes. And I got to imagine GMs and coaches and and uh, so so what. For you, when, when you reflect on, on the athletes that you work with and the stuff that you've built, um, what, what gets you more excited? The, 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 the walk away from the project with Ben Roethlisberger and him saying, wow, I just learned a lot, and now I can apply some of those takeaways and improve? Um, does that excite you more than like rolling out this awesome show that gets 20, 30 million people excited and talking about it? I... I really enjoy the entire process because if you get an amazing athlete in the lab, but you're not able to generate content that's super interesting, then you kind of wasted an opportunity. So it doesn't, it doesn't certainly end where like, wow, the athlete left the lab and I got a lot out of it. You still have a lot of work to do to deliver something. And that process and that vision and desire and passion, obviously we have an amazing staff that, that is, that we've been able to assemble that drive and passion is something that you really need to have in order to fulfill it. And I have always been a person and I mean this incredibly sincerely when a project is done that I am involved with, if I am happy with it and I sit back and I go, you know what? That's the best I can do. I mean, I'm, I am completely fine whether or not it wins an Emmy or not. I'm cool with it. If people see it or they don't, because I know that was my best and I really like it. I'm not somebody who kind of, you know, is a weather vane and just going where the wind blows and like, oh my God, we need to do this or that in order for it to be. I'm like, no, you have a vision and you execute it and you need to be cool with it. Yep. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And if you are the kind of person that's, that is able to say, it's my best work. Some, some people liked some of it. Some people didn't. I'm, I'm cool with it. Yeah. You talk about valuing the journey over the destination. I've read that uh, several times from you. Another potential part of this journey I always saw was consulting for these teams, GMs, orgs. Um, Did you ever think about taking the sports science business in that direction? That is, that is, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny what, um, 
you know, what, especially what's next. Right. You know, especially what's next. Everything's but evolving. Right? Everything is evolving. And there are um, quite a few parties who obviously have been paying close attention to what we've been doing. And, yeah. um, you know, now I'm in a, a, a position where I think that there's a big enough data set and there's a big enough knowledge set where it can really be applicable. I mean, we, I, I can genuinely say that the NFL draft shows that we have done That's what I was gonna say. have changed the position, the draft position for players in a very positive way. And I, I know up one side, down the other, I've heard from GMs, have you know, heard from coaches, I've heard from owners that like, wow, we really paid attention to that. And that guy wasn't on our radar and now he is, or we undervalued him in our own evaluation. Right. Um, it's interesting and to be able to, to be able to not only say, look, I understand this stuff inside and out, and I can be incredibly honest about it. Like I can, nothing, nothing that I've ever done. If we had an athlete who came in the lab and that athlete didn't do something that was wow worthy, then it wouldn't make the air. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're calling upon the world's greatest athletes. So yep. that never happens. Right. right? You're like, yeah. they're always going to do something. Um, but I would, you know, genuinely, if there was an athlete that I'm like, yeah, that isn't that great. I can be very honest about it. So it is, I've been put into, if you think about basement of Vienna, Virginia, right. Having no entertainment experience at all to being fortunate enough to build a a franchise like sports science and then having the sports world interested in what you have to say. That's like a crazy journey where that wasn't even the intent from where we originally started. When you talk about the best athletes in the world and some of the stuff they do, what was one or two examples? What are one or two examples of, of some of the best athletes you've seen? Folks that blew you away, or maybe you were like, hey, we're expecting this, and then just way above the bar. I mean, there was, you know, I always talk about how my favorite was always the most recent because each one is amazing. Yeah. The... When you came into the lab, I mean, I didn't know anything about lacrosse, really. And right. I even I went to the University of Virginia, and I really didn't know all that much. Yeah, and which here, is surprising. Which is surprising, right? Big I went lacrosse to U- school, yeah. A little bit. You know, one couple in the national yeah. championships <laughs> while I was there. Like, I just didn't – like, it didn't resonate because there wasn't a big youth program where I lived. Mm-hmm. So it didn't resonate with me. And when I got to UVA, I was like, oh, there's this amazing sport. And then it went off the radar for me once I left college. In, and then L.A. In L.A. and New York and whatever. Yep. You know, like you're making a company. When you came into the lab, it was it was genuinely it, it's a giant moment because my son, who was five at the time, he was just getting into the sport he wanted to play called lacrosse. And I, I told you, I said, hey, yeah. you know, he really wants he really wants to play lacrosse. You sent him out gear. You sent him out his first stick. You put us in touch with the right coach. Yep. You're like, hey, this is the the thing that you should do. And that moment to me illustrates what. What I have to say about most athletes who are the best in what they do, they're very kind, generous, curious, and re- genuinely want to help. And when you walked in kind of as the ambassador of, of lacrosse, and even since then, obviously, you've just exploded in terms of not only popularity, but the sport. It's because of sports science. <laughs> it's, it's all because <laughs> of sports science. But sports but sport science, what, what's interesting is how it, it certainly – it certainly was is not responsible for it, but 
it was seen by so yeah, many people, a massive platform, mainstream, ESPN, mm-hmm. the number of clicks, the number of comments, the number of people who have come up to me and said, wow, we saw that segment that you did with Rabel and my son's just in love with lacrosse. That was for you. You were reaching the lacrosse community. Sports science helped to put it onto a, by no means did it create it, but it's just another piece oh, to sure. the puzzle. Well, I think of what, a puzzle. what, what, you guys do really well in all of your episodes, and in particular with this one, because of certain stigmas that may be associated with lacrosse or just long tail niche sports, is that you create comparisons to other right. sports and other athletes in particular. And then there was the side by side with me and Ovechkin. Yep. Um, there was the uh, correlation to a lacrosse shot and a pitcher throwing yep. a 100 mile an hour fastball. So that type of stuff puts then lacrosse on a stage with the sports that are more highly consumed on a regular basis. When did that become a part of the process? Like what is what was the mastermind behind? Not only are we going to have sport, which is highly emotional and uh, you know generationally agnostic, uh, people care about it on a geography basis, but we're going to add the science piece and then comes – all of the other stuff that I think adds the color to this, to the show. So that was right from the very beginning because the science, the science is, it really is kind of numbers, numbers that correlate to formulas that people don't understand, but they can understand that, you know, Calvin Johnson has the radius of a two car garage. Like you can understand that. Yeah. Right. And that's, scientific fact without all the formulas and crazy numbers. You're like, wow, that's as big as a two-car garage. So when we're saying, wow, Rabel is accurate as a pitcher, throwing 100, but the ball's going faster than an MLB pitcher can actually throw it, and it's being released from a lever that's further out from his arm, which you would think theoretically would decrease accuracy, but he's able to hit these plates that are smaller than the size of of, uh, of of the strike zone. Mm -hmm. Like that... Being able to put those visuals together it w- is what gets people around a water cooler and say, did you know this? It's pretty crazy. Yeah. We, we did a piece on baseball about, did you know that the speed of the bat and the it, it's called um, the ball, the w- w- how long the ball is actually uh, in contact with the bat. It's in contact with the bat for one thousandth of a second, but the vibrations that start from the end that go to your hands take three thousandths of a second, which means theoretically you could let go of a bat two thousandths of a second before it makes contact and the ball will go just as far. Huh? And that's a crazy thing for people to think. They're like, no, 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 no. It's all about the follow through and the hands and feeling. I'm like, it's not, it's about the speed of one object hitting another object. Hmm. You don't actually have to be holding on to it. So it's not even going back to my consulting remarks. It's not just about the teams evaluating talent. You know, there's a lot to be uncovered in sports in way of advice to the actual player and technique. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. There, there's so much. You know, in baseball, we've proven up one side and down the other that swinging a bat in the on deck circle with a weight on it slows your bat speed down. It'll never change because it's habit. Right. It just even <laughs> and though it's highly superstitious <laughs> in that game. Exactly. Yeah. And it's because oh, I'm swinging heavy object. Now I drop it off. Now object light. Right. Right. Your brain thinks it's light. Yeah. So you don't have to generate as much force to get it around because you're thinking it's light. If it's heavy, your brain is pr- saying, "God, my kinetic chain better be in tip-top shape because I'm getting around a heavy object." 
that's the way that it just simply works. And we've tested it with golf and with baseball and anything that moves as a racket mm-hmm. or, or as a, as a, as um, a, uh, you know, as like a bat yeah. or um, a club. It's, it's amazing. It's a stickball sport. Just a stickball sport. It's amazing. But you, even though you can break it down in scientific fact, pe- people are going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're going to say, look, we've been doing just fine doing it the way that we've been doing it. Great. The fact is the bat would go faster if you actually didn't have a donut. Superstition leads way to uh, mental performance, sports psychology. You assess the, uh, the, the physiology, the, the physical characteristics often of these high-performing athletes, but you spend a lot of time on the mental side of the game too, and, and you wrote your New York Times bestselling book, um, The Perfection Point, and talking about you know, uh, optimal high performers, how they get there. Where do you land on your evaluation of talent that's come through the door, and how much is it that leads to their success, physical versus mental? The biggest misconception is that the world's best athletes, and we're talking the elite level, the pro level. We're not not talking about youth, high school, or even college. The biggest misconception is that these great athletes wake up, roll out of bed, and they're just better than you. That's true when they're eight. (laughs) <laughs> it's true maybe even when they're 18, right? Right. But when you get into the elite, elite level where everybody was that kid who woke up, rolled out of bed, and was better than the kid living next door, the good, what separates the good from the great is really this, it's the mental aspect and the aspect that, you, that people will commonly refer to as just heart. Like how badly do they actually want to win? How badly does someone you know, the, the expression of champions hate losing more than they like winning the, I will not lose. That's like the Jordan effect, the tiger effect, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. the, I'm just not going. If, if I'm not, if I'm playing, I'm winning. And if I don't win, I'm going to be really pissed. If I win, that's what I expected. Right. Those, that was my expectation. So it's that heart and desire and drive that really, really separates out. And when you look at every sort of bust where people refer to it as like, oh, that person was a bust, what usually ends up happening is, especially in this modern generation, is if you pay a 20-year-old tens of millions of dollars guaranteed up front and they get hurt and, they're al- and it turns out their heart just isn't into it, I can honestly say if someone dumped $40 million in my lap guaranteed and I hurt myself, I'm not sure what my reward is to get better and be the best. And I can't, I can't even, you know, as as an honest human being, I'd say I would have a hard time saying, God, I got to get another $40 million. Right. Right. And because you're so young yeah, and it's, it's out of perspective. You know, I have a, I have a cover of a, of a sports illustrated magazine that showed salaries and Michael Jordan, you know, a few years in was making $800,000. Yep. Right. And like he didn't have this, wow, a hundred million dollars was just dumped in your lap all of a sudden. Yeah. Like he was like, I need to work and work and work and work. And the money, obviously, in all fields, it comes with success. It comes with being the best, but it's not the reason you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. With these players that are driven to the extent of uh, that, that you have mentioned and absolutely despise the notion of losing. Do you get that 
when you work with them one-on-one in these studios. And I, I, for example, with us, I remember probably taking for, for the fastest shot, I come in at, at 111 miles an hour and we were just shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting to get there because most of it was just competitive drive for me. And I wanted to put that thing out there in a way that, uh, that validated what I've been able to do, but it's, it's also very difficult. So, so my, my guess is that these athletes portray similar tendencies mentally. And when you write about this in your book, you talk about what's possible physiologically. Um, And I look often look at, and you reference it, the, the four minute mile, right. right? And how it took years and years and years for it to break. And then inside of the next 12 to 16 months or whatever, another 300 people, right. You know, roughly whatever, whatever that's, that uh, statistic was. So does that, you know, underscore the mental aspect of performance? It, as a species, there's a really fascinating, um, philosopher named Rupert Sheldrake. And he wrote a book that's called, it's all about this theory of morphic resonance. Now I am not saying that this is true, but it's a really good analogy for how we operate as a species. The theory of morphic resonance is that we, if you say we as human beings, where do our thoughts come from? Like, where, where do they come from? People say, your brain, your head, your whatever. He'll say, uh, the, the argument will go, well, we are like a television. And if you look at a television and say, well, where does the picture come from? It doesn't come from inside the TV. It comes from outside, right? And you could never find where it came from by taking it apart. Huh. So the theory goes, if you, and this is true, like there are tons of animal studies that are done where if you have ants building an anthill, like two, two, uh, two sets of ants, and you scoop ants from the north side and switch them to the south side of the other hill that's being built, those ants will start building toward the south side. Now, they obviously haven't spoken. They haven't, they haven't gathered around and said, hey, we're now on the other side. They just know it somehow. And there's studies done with rats figuring out a maze where you put them on different continents. They're from the same species, the same family, and they'll figure out the maze within a few minutes of each other. And why is that? There, you know, is it, well, that's just how long it takes to figure it out? Or is there something that's just in the ether that's just out there that, that each individual DNA strand taps into? So for humans, what we do is we set limits. And we just believe this is a limit, period. We can run 5,280 feet in four minutes, both arbitrary numbers. And yep. I always say beware of round numbers. Because right. round numbers, how can, what, is it coincidence that we thought the limit to the 100-meter dash was 10 seconds? Yeah. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would that be the limit? <laughs> right. It's got to be 10 seconds. Right. That's it. It's got to be for the mile. Four minutes, period, right, right on the nose. So when Bannister did it, it was 46 days later it was broken, and within 10 years it was broken 300 times, which is once every 12 days. Right. Why did we as a species all of a sudden get fitter? Were we more athletic? Or it was it sort of in the ether that, oh, four minutes is a crappy limit. Like, I shouldn't even be aiming for that. I should be aiming for 350. Right. Right? Like, that's just not the right limit. All of a sudden, our eyes are open to that. And I think that happens in sport a lot where you go, wow, what was the previous limit? I guess that was a bad limit because I could do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of explains the, you know, whether or not it's a literal something's in the ether or just a mental 
barrier, I think that's what happens. So where are the limits and do we ever find them? I, so in the book, the, the New York Times bestselling book that I wrote called The Perfection Point was, is all about finding that limit. So I calculate like every factor I could possibly think of. So, so if it's the if it's the hundred hundred uh, meter dash, I'm taking elevation, legal wind, surface, shoes, body type, starting time, reaction time, acceleration. If everything were perfect, perfect scenario. the perfect scenario. If everything were perfect, what would it be? And, you, and people say, well, Usain Bolt is perfect. I'm like, well, he's not perfect because. Is he the first one out of the blocks? I mean, imagine yeah. if he was first out of the blocks for the first 30 meters, which he never was. Yeah. Right? He always came from behind. So there obviously is time there that could have been made up, theoretically. So when you calculate it out, I believe we can't reach perfection. It's a great it, – like when you put all these things in together. Anything, in anything. I'm aligned. You, can't, you just can't. Right. right. You can't be perfect. And everything cannot be aligned. People will point to the Bob Beamer long jump. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, Beamer broke the long jump by two feet. Broke the world record by two feet. Any calculations that you do that, that John Brinkus would say is the limit, uh, certainly somebody's going to shatter that by a lot like Bob Beamer did. And I said, or Beamer, and I said, I said, wait a minute, how many people were long jumping? I mean, how many people were like, had a pit in their backyard and they're long jumping and measuring it? Like no one. Yeah. Like how, when they, they, you say baseball, the fastest pitch thrown. Well, there are a million pitches thrown in North America by professionals every year alone, not including collegiate players, not including, you know, excellent you know, yeah. teenagers. There are mil- the, the data set is huge. So we can peg it pretty well what the absolute limit is going to be. It's all based on the size of the data set. Wow, that's fascinating. So, so did you land on a conclusion? I did, but I don't want to give it away. I want people to read, read the book. book. You got to <laughs> okay. read the book because it's too. When I say a number, you can't like it, people say that's not true because yeah. I have to. It's got to be backed. I back up every thousandth of a second. I'm not going to give it right. away in the outro to this episode either. Then, <laughs> <laughs> so with new media, how are you addressing? sports science and other properties, new media being social and the way millennials and Gen Zs are consuming on these platforms and how, you know, uh, screen size doesn't matter anymore. Right. And in fact, the, the preferred screen is a mobile device where you and I five, six years ago thought that that was going to be the lifeline of television was screen size. Now right. you can push and all the technologies there. Um, you went from a 60-minute show to being segmented be- for the better ship of the viewer. Um, now, uh, now there's new media, YouTube, new platforms. Are you going to address that differently? Um, are you pulling exclusive deals out? What, what can you share with us for the future of sports science and the way that you're creating content? That is the, the next evolution is we've reached a point where it's, you know, it was consumed long form, it was consumed short form, and now it needs to be able to be consumed in many different ways, mm-hmm. you know, ways that were inconceivable in 2009, yep. right? You're like, God, I didn't even know that was going to exist. Yep. So as the world is, is evolving, you need to evolve as well, right? Just like an athlete, it's like rules change, athlete, athletes get better. You're like, wow, I got I to gotta learn some new trick in right. order to capture um, a larger audience. So yeah, the question is, is which platforms are going to stick? Because you look at, you know, you look at Vine or you look at companies that are susceptible and you're like, 
I don't know, man. Even like, Snapchat right now. Right, even Snapchat. You're like, God, I don't know. Like, which which platforms are actually going to survive? I mean, you you know Amazon's going to survive, right? And Amazon's really open and creative. Or right. We figure it's going to survive. And if they're broken up at some point, they're still surviving just in unique properties unique of each properties, other. Unique properties, right. It's the, we're, it seems like we're going through that phase of it's the wild, wild west right now, and we're making towns. And the question is, is which town is going to be the biggest town? That yep. everybody wants to move to. And I think that's a, an appropriate analogy for where we are with technology because there isn't a uniform, there isn't even a, a uni, a, an agreed upon uniform codec that works everywhere, right? Like it's, you have to figure out, we all need, need to be on the same page, whether or not it's beta versus VHS or whatever, got to be on the same page. And we have to, we have to have the vision and lay a bet as to what's going to be around and be flexible enough to change should you be wrong. Where do you come up with your answers for questions as just proposed and, and others? Are you a man that prefers networking? You consume content via email newsletters. I know you have a podcast we're about to swap now. Yeah. Um, other forms, you aggregate many. How much time do you spend on kind of all of the above? I, my main resource is really is smart people. People who I'm like, wow, that person is way smarter than I am. I need to pick that person's brain. Um, I like to think that I think a sign of intelligence is knowing you're not that smart. Mm. I mean, that's how I sort of define it. I'm like, I know I'm not that smart in everything. I mean, how can you be? Nobody can. So you go to people who are genuine experts in their field and say, let me, let me sit down with you and figure this out. Because if you don't do that and you just say, well, I'm going to rely on a hunch or I'm just going to rely on what I think. I mean, you have to understand that no one human being can know everything. You can know a little about a lot or a lot about a little. And you, when you end up going to those people who know a lot about a little and they're real specialists, you, you take a listen to it. Yeah. So Appreciate it, man. Great advice. I think what we, what we love uh, about, I think, our, our relationship and, and those that we associate ourselves with and, and what you're mentioning, that self-awareness, is that emotional intelligence. Right. And, and that's a big part of... Um, the equation now more than ever, especially with AI and um, where where the computer software hardware business is going and just being able to put yourself in a room with people who know how to interact and are particularly strong with their soft skills. Um, so you've always struck me that way. I appreciate you hopping on the pod, my man. And, <laughs> and best of luck, continued success. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you're the best. And honestly, you... You know, of any of the athletes that have come through the lab, you've certainly influenced my son more than any. Well, I appreciate that. So it's been awesome, and it's been an honor knowing you, and I look forward to many years of friendship. Hope you enjoyed listening to my good friend, John Brankus. JB, thanks for joining me. Continue the conversation with us over on Twitter. My handle's at Paul Rabel. His is at John Brankus underscore. He also has a quarter of a million followers. I'm outmatched again. And we recorded for his show separately. It's a podcast called The Brink of Midnight. That's coming soon. Be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, investor Gary Vaynerchuk, NFL quarterback Drew Brees, and last week's guest, world-class skateboarder Tori Pudwell. There's a shortcut to our show notes, including all of John's shows, including that podcast that will be on soon. Visit studentuppodcast.com. By the way, Shout out Neil Savage and Andrew Manning at Rabelco for working their asses off on keeping our site updated, detailed, and hyperlinked. 
You guys are tremendous. I hope all the listeners check it out, suitingupodcast.com. Finally, last but not least, shout out to our show's sponsor today, Away Travel. Next week is our final podcast of the year. That's right. We're taking Christmas and New Year's Day off, both Mondays. But our guest next week is going to, how should I say this, be a holiday gift. <laughs>